All right, good morning. We're going to get started here. Good to see you all back. We are in week five of spiritual disciplines. Anybody re go through the disciplines we've talked about so far? Prayer, okay. Scripture, meditation. She, she was going to check her notes. <laughs> so we've talked about hearing the word, reading the word, memorizing the word, meditating on the word, prayer, and fasting. Okay, today we're going to talk about another spiritual discipline, service. We're going to talk about service, and then at the end we'll talk a little bit about spiritual gifts and how they interact with service and what to do if you don't know your spiritual gift. So let's just start with a basic definition. When we talk about service, what are we talking about? Service is work done for other people or for God or the worship of God. It's work. You thought you came to church and you weren't going to have to work. No, it's work. Service is work. And when we go through the Bible, I want to look at what the Bible says about service. Because when we understand how the Bible addresses service, it'll help us view service correctly. When we talk about serving, we're, we tend to put it into terms that we like rather than the terms that the Bible uses. So for the Greek and Hebrew nerds in the room, the next few minutes are for you. For the rest of you, bear with me, follow me. We're going to go through some terms here, but I just want you to listen to how the Bible discusses the issue of service and those who serve. Okay, So we're going to start in the Old Testament. There's a Hebrew word, avodah, excuse me. It refers to work in general. This is a noun. It just refers to any kind of work. But it has a few specific contexts that it's used. One of them is just general work. Leviticus 23, verse 8. On the, day, on the first day, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any laborious work. It's just a general prohibition against work during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The same term, avodah, can refer to the work of a slave. Uh, you can see this in Leviticus 25, verse 39. If a countryman of yours becomes so poor with regard to you that he sells himself to you, you shall not subject him to a slave's service. Now, we're not going to talk about all the intricacies of how slaves handled, were handled in the Old Testament, but it's just saying this word refers to the work that is done by a slave. This same term, avodah, can refer to forced labor. It's not always voluntary. The work of a slave isn't voluntary, and this is just forced labor on anyone in general. The best example of this is out of Exodus 1. And they made their lives bitter, speaking of the Egyptians, with hard labor in mortar and bricks and all kinds of labor in the field, all their labors which they rigorously imposed on them. The Hebrews were in Egypt, and they were being forced into labor. That's the same word that we often have translated as service is used to refer to forced labor. Avodah could also refer to the service of worship. Service that is done in worship to God. Second uh, Chronicles 34, verse 13, he lists the different kinds of work and labor that are done in the temple and around the, the sacrifices that are made to God. These are types of avodah, okay, when we're talking about worship. There is another Hebrew word that is used and translated often with the term service, sharath. Sharath, this is a verb. It describes what you're actually doing. It refers to service as someone's personal servant or someone's personal slave. It's describing the action of your work, the work that you're doing as a slave. This was used of Joseph when he became the personal slave, the personal servant of Potiphar. Sharath can also refer to serving God in the practice of worship. 
It can refer to a slave serving another human being. It can also refer to a person serving God. A good example of this is in Deuteronomy 10, verse 8. At that time, the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the ark of the covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to serve him, there's our word, and to bless in his name until this day. By serving him, what he means is to do the work of a slave for God. To work as a slave for God. So we've talked about one word that refers to just work in general, and it describes the work. We've talked about another word that describes the work of a slave. Both of them are used to refer to service. Let's talk about the person who actually does the serving. In the Old Testament, there was a word for a person who served another. It's the Hebrew word evid. Evid. It refers to the one who performs a service. It refers to a slave or a servant. The evid was not voluntary. The evid was owned. He was owned by another person. Genesis 24, verse 35. The Lord has, caused great, has greatly blessed my master so that he's, he has become rich and he has given him flocks and herds and silver and gold and servants, Evans. He has given him slaves. He owns slaves. The Evid was considered to be property. Exodus 21, 21. If, however, he survives a day or two, no vengeance shall be taken, for he is his property. This is referring to the treatment of slaves in the Old Testament. If a slave misbehaved and his master hit him or beat him for it, the master would face punishment. He would be penalized for it. But it was not proper for you to kill the master for doing it because that slave is his property. If you are an evid, if you are a slave, you are owned by someone else. So what have we learned from the Old Testament regarding service? Service is given by slaves. Slaves are owned by someone else. Slaves are required to be completely obedient, and their service is merely what is expected of them. Now you might say, well, Frank, you're not exactly giving me a reason to want to be a servant here. This doesn't sound very enjoyable. Why would I want to be involved in this? Why would I want to be called an evid? It's a good question. Let me introduce you to some other people who are called evid. Here's just a couple of them. Abraham, Jacob, Joshua, Ruth, Hannah, Jesse, Uriah, Joab, Isaiah, Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar, Moses, David. Not a bad list to be a part of, is it? All of them referred to as servants, slaves. There was another guy in the Old Testament who was called a slave too. Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold my servant, my evid, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Who's he talking about? Talking about the Messiah. Isaiah 53. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, my evid, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Old Testament idea of service, it's the work of a slave. A slave is owned by somebody else, and the work that he does is merely what is expected of him. New Testament has some terminology. Again, you Greek and Hebrew geeks out there, this is for you. One of them is called is diakonos. It refers to one who gets something done at the behest of a superior. You might say this is somebody's assistant. This was the same term used for Phoebe in Romans 16. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church. 
She's one who gets things done for the church. They also have a Greek word that refers to the services rendered, the, the, the actual work. Diakonia refers, refers to the services rendered, the, the performance of the service. And the root of this term is actually dealing with running errands. We're not talking about great, wonderful, glorious tasks. We're talking about menial, trivial tasks that are just everyday items. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 8, Paul said, I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you, to meet your basic needs, run errands for you. He did more than that. There is a verb, just like in the Old Testament, we had a verb that described the action of work. Deluo. Deluo. It means to be owned by another. To be a slave. To act or to conduct oneself as one in total service to another. To perform the duties of a slave. It's not merely just to be a slave. You don't have to be a slave for this to apply to you. You can be someone who's just doing the work of a slave who's performing as a slave. Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve, no one can behave as a slave for two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot be a slave to both God and money. You see how it's being used? This can refer to anyone regardless of whether or not they're actually slaves. Luke 15, 29. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have ne never neglected a command of yours. He's not a slave. He's a son. But the work he has been doing, the service that he has been rendering to his father, he has been doing as if he was a slave. And then there is also a Greek term that refers to the service, the one who provides the service himself. You've heard this term, doulos. One who is solely committed to another, a slave or a subject. It's also used to refer to somebody's humble service. Matthew 20, verse 27. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, shall be totally committed to your service, to serving you, a doulos. One writer said a very, this word is a very common word with a variety of meanings, all of them implying a greater or less degree of inferiority and want of freedom. Every time this word is used, it implies some level of inferiority, some level of a lack of freedom. You are compelled to act in a certain way because you are a doulos, you are a slave. So, service is given by slaves, biblically. They're owned by another. They are required to be completely obedient, and their service is merely what is expected of them. We say, well, that's the same list he just showed previously. You're right, that is the same list. But let's connect it. As Christians, what does the Bible say about us? It says we are slaves. It says, as Christians, we are owned by another. We are required to be completely obedient, and our service, our work, is merely what we are expected to do. It's not earning something, but it is the basic expectation for the Christian life. In Luke 17, Jesus teaches on forgiveness. And he tells his disciples something that kind of shocks them. Basically, your forgiveness has to be unlimited. You just have to keep on forgiving because that's how God has forgiven you. And the disciples respond in a very pious way. They say, Lord, increase our faith. You see, the problem we have with this isn't that we don't want to do it, Lord. We just can't do it. We don't have enough faith. And Jesus said, no, no, faith is not your problem. It's not that you don't have enough faith. If you had just a little bit of faith, you could make a mulberry tree uproot itself. Your problem is that you have a wrong view of yourself. Luke 17, 7. He says, Which of you having a slave plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, 
Come immediately and sit down to eat. Jesus is just giving them an example they understood. When a master had a slave in the field working, if he called the slave in to prepare a meal, there was no question whether or not the slave was going to come in and fix the meal for him. And he wouldn't turn to him and say, hey, slave, why don't you come in and sit down and let me serve you food? Next verse. But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterward, you may eat and drink. He's not being mean. He's not being cruel. This is just what is expected of someone in that position. As a slave, he's expected to come into the house to clean himself up and prepare the meal for his master. That's the expectation. Next verse, Jesus says, he does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? When you show up to work, does your boss say, hey, thanks for coming in today? Thanks for taking a shower, brushing your teeth, looking presentable. Thank you for doing the basic parts of your job. No, those are just expected. That's just the expectation of the job. And here, the expectation for the slave is that he's going to come into the house, clean himself up, dress himself properly, and serve the meal for his master. Luke 17, 10, Jesus takes this home to the disciples. And he says, so you too when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves, we have done only that which we ought to have done. The service of a Christian is merely that which is expected of you. You are expected as a Christian to be serving. You are a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is Lord, that means he is the master if he is the master and we are the slaves, we are expected to be completely obedient to him. And you have been called, you have been commanded to be serving. Psalm 100. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. Hebrews 9.14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Cleanse your conscience from dead works for what? To serve the living God. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned from God to serve, turn, turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Part of the whole point of redemption was that you would turn and serve God. We are not slaves of our own desires. We're not slaves of our spouse. We're not slaves of elders or pastors. You're not a slave of Grace Bible Church. But you are slaves of God. And everything you do, every work that you have, every task that you set about, set about to do, all of it is to be done in service to God because you are his slave. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Whatever then, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I have the wrong verse on this one. I think this is out of Romans 12. Employ it, speaking of your spiritual gifts, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. All the gifts, all the talents, all the abilities, all the resources God has given you, he has given so that you would serve him. And your service is merely being a good steward of what God has given you. And how do you serve God? Employ it in serving one another. You serve God, you serve Christ as a slave of God by serving your brothers and sisters in Christ. Hebrews 6, verse 10. He said, For God is not unjust, so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and is still ministering to the saints. Notice the love which you have shown toward his name. 
the work of service given to the brothers and sisters in Christ is given to demonstrate a love for God and for Christ. Matthew 25, verse 44, Then they themselves will also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? And he answers, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. The focus is not on how do I serve someone else. That's going to be there, but that's not the main ultimate goal. If my ultimate goal is to serve those only that I love, then I'm going to start picking and choosing. But if my ultimate goal is to serve God, then anyone made in his image, anybody who is a part of Christ, is worthy of my service because it's how I demonstrate love to Christ. Service in the church, service done for brothers and sisters in Christ, is done for Christ first and foremost. It's not done because a church commands you to. It's not done because someone got up there and made a strong argument. It's done out of a demonstration of love. All Christian service is done for Christ. He is the master, you are his slave, and serving is merely what you are expected to be doing. Now in the context here, he's not talking about service exclusively within the church. So we're not talking only about serving here at Grace Bible Church. This is service to any brother or sister in Christ. And there are some different ways that you can have motivation. There are some motivating things that will make you want to do this. The first motivator to Christian service is merely wanting to be obedient. Deuteronomy 13, verse 4, You shall follow the Lord your God and fear him, and you shall keep his commandments. Listen to his voice, serve him, and cling to him. Service motivated by a desire for just being obedient. Guess what? It's still obedience. If that's where you are beginning, I'm not into serving, but I do want to be obedient. Then use that as the motivation to serve. I just want to be obedient. Refusing to serve because you don't like the work, because you want a better task, is still disobedience. It's still not obeying. John Newton talked about the service, talked about service, and he, he gave an example of two angels. And here's his example. If two angels were to receive at the same moment a commission from God, one to go down and rule Earth's grandest empire, and the other to go and sweep the streets of its meanest village, it would be a matter of entire indifference to each which service fell to his lot. The post of ruler or the post of scavenger for the joy of the angels lies only in obedience to God's will. If your ultimate motivation in serving is to be obedient to God, to be pleasing to God, then it's not going to matter what task is set before you. It won't matter because your goal is not you. Your goal is to be obedient, to be pleasing. Having the right motivation is a good way to start serving. Donald Whitney said, but we disobey God when we do not actively serve him. We sin when we refuse to serve God. You serve God by serving your brothers and sisters in Christ, whether that's inside the church or out during the rest of the week. So the first motivation is just, I want to be obedient. Second motivation. By the way, this list of motivations you can find in Donald Whitney's little book, Spiritual Disciplines of the Christian Life. Second one, gratitude. 1 Samuel 12, verse 24. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. Donald Whitney on this said, Do you remember what it's like to not know Christ? To be without God and without hope? Do you remember how it feels to be guilty before God and unforgiven? Do you remember the terror of knowing that you have offended God and that his anger, oh, I cut it off, his anger abides on you is what it said. Do you remember the joy of your first awareness of forgiveness and deliverance from judgment and hell? Do you remember the initial 
incomparable realization of your assurance of heaven and eternal life. Just think about what Christ has done for you. Think about what you used to be, what you used to do, where you were headed before, and what Christ has done for you, and let that draw up some gratitude. Donald Whitney said, When the fire of service grows cold, consider what great things the Lord has done for you. Someone who is thankful to God for what God has done for them will serve out of love and gratitude for God. And because what God has done for them is infinite and boundless and they, can, they can't even contain it in words, there will not be no limit to the service they will provide to someone else. Well, when you think about what Christ has done for you, when you think about what God has done for you, that should bring up another motivation. Gladness. Psalm 100, verse 2. Serve the Lord with gladness. We looked at that one earlier. Just being joyful. Donna Whitney again. I can understand why the person who serves God in an attempt to earn his way to heaven doesn't serve with gladness. But the Christians who gratefully acknowledge what God has done for him or her for eternity should be able to serve God cheerfully and with joy. If you're serving properly, if you have the right motivation and service, you shouldn't have a problem doing it with a smile on your face and joy in your heart. It's when we think that we have to earn something. This becomes a drudgery. I don't want to go serve. That's just work. Why would I want to do that? And so you do it merely out of compulsion. You're being forced into doing this. But when you enter in with gratitude and you consider what God has done for you, you should be able to serve with a really big smile on your face joyfully. Another motivating, another motivation to service. Humility. John 13, 12 through 16. We're not going to read it because you guys know the story. This is the story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. What you need to realize is they had a table. Their tables were not like ours where we sit at a table with chairs. They used to lay by their table. And so your, your head was in close proximity to somebody's feet. And so because they all wore open-toed, open sandals, their feet got kind of dirty. And so it was customary when you came into somebody's house for dinner, the slave of the home would wash the feet of everybody who comes into the house. That was customary. So Jesus and his disciples come in for the Last Supper, and, well, there's no slave there. And the 12 disciples don't want to do it. And so the second person of the Trinity, God incarnate, takes on the job of a slave. He takes on the job of the lowest slave in the house. And he washes the feet of his own creation. That's humility. That's humbleness. If you want to know if someone if you're lacking humility in serving, someone who's struggling with pride and they don't have a whole lot of humility. They ask questions like this. Well, if I serve, what will I get out of it? It's self-motivated. I'm going to serve because I'm going to get something back. It's not out of gratitude. What did Jesus get back when he washed his disciples' feet? He got Peter arguing with him. That's all he got back. And then Judas betrayed him. The person who serves merely for a reward is serving with a completely wrong attitude. That's not an attitude of humility. Or another one who said, who will notice? Who's going to thank me for it? If it's not a job that's in front of everybody that everybody's going to notice, I don't want to do it. If I can't be in front of the whole group and everyone's going to see it, then don't even ask me to do it. So there's a serious lack of humility. 
They only want people to know, the only reason they want to serve is so that they can receive accolades from people around them. Philippians 2, do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. I think in 1 Corinthians 13, love does not seek its own. If we're truly serving God, we're serving Christ, we're going to recognize who we actually are. We're slaves. And serving one another is merely what is expected. It's not so we can get a reward. It's not so we can get accolades and someone can say, hey, great job, thank you for what you're doing. The final motivation comes right out of this. Love. Galatians 5, verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. Your ultimate reason for serving is because you're a slave of God and you want to show and demonstrate your love to God. Second motivation you love the people of God. You love your brothers and sisters in Christ. And when you see a brother or sister suffering or needing something, it's love that motivates you and compels you to want to help them. Mark 12, 30 and 31. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. And the second one is this, the, the greatest commandment. The second greatest commandment is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. True love for your brothers and sisters in Christ will motivate you to love them as yourself. I'm going to tell you something. When I have a physical need, it's met. When I'm hungry, I go eat. I shower every day. I take care of myself. Why? Same reason everyone else does it. Because I love myself. But if I see a brother or sister in need, and I don't go and meet that need, and I don't bother to serve them, what am I saying about them? What am I saying about my love for them? Love for others should motivate you to serve others. Now, here's a question. So we're talking about service. Why are we talking about service today? Is this actually a spiritual discipline? Fasting, I understand. That's a spiritual discipline. But is service really, a, is this really a spiritual discipline? Yes. For a couple of reasons. One, Christian service is demanding. It's going to demand a lot from you. It's going to demand your time, your effort, your attention. It's going to demand that you care. And it can hurt. So it's very demanding. You're going to give up time with your family. You might give up resources. You're going to give up time with your hobbies and things that you want to do. To truly serve is demanding. And we already kind of talked about this, but Christian service requires humility. Proud people don't serve. Not truly. True Christian service requires that you humble yourself. Because you're going to be asked to do something you really don't want to do. You're going to feel like this is less than what I this is less than what I should be doing. Why should I be doing this? It requires a level of humility. Donald Whitney said, "Although no more spiritually grand and noble way of life can be found, than living in response to Christ's summons to serve, the daily realities of such a life often appear as lowly and pedestrian as washing someone's feet. You're going to be doing a whole bunch of tasks that just seem meaningless, fruitless. And if we just talk about in the church, just in the church, the reality is not everyone's going to be preaching. Not everyone's going to be teaching. Not everyone's going to be singing solos during the offertory. Trust me, you don't want me to. 
Not every, not every, uh, most service in the church, most of the service that happens in this church goes unseen. Nobody ever knows about it. Most of the members and the people who attend here benefit greatly from it. But they never actually see the work that's being done. They just assume it's just the way it is. It just happens automatically. These are people who never stand in the pulpit on Sunday. You never hear the names mentioned on Sunday morning. Their labors and their efforts are enjoyed by the congregation, but seldom are they ever seen. That requires humility, and they keep going. They just keep serving. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Die to self. Die to my own ambitions. Die to all the things that I want. And I'm going to die in the service of someone else. Now, I was just thinking about some of the examples. You know, I just said there's all these people who are serving in the church, and you don't see a lot of it. I was just trying to brainstorm, and these aren't all of them. But I was just brainstorming some of the, the ways people in this church serve. Here's what I came up with. Nursery volunteers. God bless them. It's a tough job. It's a tough job. And when they could be upstairs having their own souls nourished in an equip equipping class or Sunday morning service, they're choosing to serve. And they're downstairs and they're caring for babies, which is not always the funnest thing in the world to do. Or cleaning. You walk in this church every week. It's nice and clean. Trash is taken out. Floors are vacuumed. Everything's nice and clean. You realize there's people in this church who serve every single week faithfully coming in and cleaning? You never see them. You never hear about it. They're never given accolades in front of everybody. Sound, technology. There are times those guys back there come in during the week because something went wrong. No one ever sees it. They never know about it. And we can keep on going. I don't want to go through each of these. But there are people serving constantly in this church, making things happen. This church runs not because I stand up here or Michael stands up here. This church runs because there are people in the church making those things happen. They are serving, and most of them are never seen. Most of what they do is never seen. How many of you have heard of the 80-20 rule? Anybody know what that is? I see like one or two people not. If you, if you know what that is, raise your hand. Okay, okay, okay. The 80-20 rule, so there is a group. 80-20 rule. 80% of the work is done by 20% of the congregation. Or you could say 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people at, at your job. What if that wasn't true here? What if it was 80% of the work is done by 80% of the people? It certainly would make serving a lot easier. Be a lot less to do. Okay, any questions on service? Because we're going to go into spiritual gifts real quick here. Any comments? Nothing, okay. Let's talk about spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12. Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. Verse 11. But one and the same Spirit works all things, distributing to each one individually, just as he wills. When you became a Christian, God gave you a spiritual gift. He gave you something that you can do. And I'm going to go through a list of some of these gifts. We're not talking about the miraculous gifts. We're not talking about healing and prophecy. We're not talking about those. We're talking about the service gifts. I'm going to go through this list. We're going to do this kind of quick. Uh, we'll just mention them. 
This list is from Biblical Doctrine, so if you would like to find the list, it's in the Biblical Doctrine book. And Pastor went through these in his sermon, so I don't think we need to rehash these in depth. Can you guys see that in the back? Can you read that? Okay. An evangelist gifted by God to bring the gospel to unbelievers. Short and simple, right? This is a person who has a desire to evangelize. They love evangelizing, and they love talking to people who are not saved about Christ. Or exhortation. This is the divine enablement to effectively incite practical holiness. This is the person who comes to you and tells you something from the Word of God, and you're like, man, I really want to go do that now. And they can exhort you and encourage you to do something with the Word of God. Faith. Have you ever met those people that you get into a tough situation and everybody else is kind of shaky? And this person is rock solid? They have a divine gift of faith. Complete trust in God. James 1 says, Ask with faith and without any doubting. This spiritual gift might manifest itself in a prayer life that is really effective. Giving. Being able to give resources at the right time and at the right place to be the most effective. It's not just giving, but doing it at the right time and the right place. Helping, serving. To sacrificially and submissively help meet the needs of other Christians. Leading, administrating. Two sides of the same coin. Administration really deals with uh, organizing and bring things together. Mercy. Divine enablement to cheerfully detect, empathize with, and assist in meeting the physical, emotional, and spiritual needs of other people. I really like where they said to detect. Because how many times has someone walked up to you and said, hey, you know, you just spoke to... Joe over there, did you know he's having a really bad day? And they tell you this long story about what happened with Joe. And you're like, man, I didn't even realize he was upset. They com- completely missed it. How'd you know? And they say, well, I just, something seemed amiss, so I decided to ask about it. You have a gift for spotting people in pain and then going and meeting their pain and meeting their needs. Preaching, we don't need to talk about that. You guys know what that is. Shepherding, leading and caring for people. Spiritual discernment, you've heard of discernment ministries. Not all of them are very discerning, but discernment, being able to detect truth from error and separate the two out and explain the truth and defend the truth. And then teaching, being able to interpret and explain Scripture, and then apply that to someone's life. Now, we just go through these quickly. These have been given to you for the edification of the body. They were not given so we could sit down and just relax and chill and enjoy it ourselves. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 12. So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Gifts have been given for the edification of the body. 1 Corinthians 14, 26, let all things be done for edification. God has given you a gift. That gift is not for you. That gift is not for you. It's for the benefit of your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's for the benefit of the church. And the only way the church will benefit from it, the only way other people in the church will benefit from it, is if you're actually engaging and using it in service. Don Whitney again, God gives spiritual gifts for use and service. If he intended no use for your gift, there would no longer be any purpose for your life. Why would God allow us to live beyond any usefulness to him? God has given you a gift, and he continues to give you wind in your lungs. And as long as you're breathing, you can still use the gift he has given. You can still be of service to him. It's not an age thing. It's not a physical capacity thing. If you're alive, you can still be of service to God. 
Romans 12, 6, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to each to, to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. You're not going to be held responsible for the gift that you don't have. But you will be held responsible for how you utilize the gifts that God has given you and your failure to use them and to grow in their use. God intends all of us to be serving Him, and we serve Him through serving one another. And God has equipped you with a gift so you can do that. And you see this in the Old Testament. You see a a resemblance of this. When God told the Israelites to build the tabernacle, what He was asking them to do required craftsmanship. It required artistic ability. Exodus 31, verse 2. I have filled him, Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with the spirit of God and wisdom and understanding and knowledge and all kinds of craftsmanship to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze. God had a need that he needed filled. He had a task for this one individual And he gave him the gifts and the talents and the abilities necessary to meet that need. God has given you a gift because there is a need in the church, whether here or outside, that you can meet. God also provided leadership. Judges 3.10 The Spirit of the Lord came upon Othniel and he judged Israel. Solomon had the same thing. When he took over as king, he was a young man, and he called to God for aid and assistance in leading the people of Israel. Now, there are some objections that people make, some reasons why we don't serve. I don't know what my gift is. So that means I can't serve. I can't serve until I can find out what my gift is. That's not true. Nowhere in Scripture does it say your service is dependent upon your knowledge of your gift. Nowhere in Scripture does it say you must know what your gift is before you can serve. You just start serving. But let's talk about how can you determine your spiritual gift. There's really two ways. The first one is study the gifts. Go back, listen to pastor's sermon. Go read some books, read scripture, study what scripture says about the gifts, and then look at your own life. That's a good way to do it. There's another way. Just start serving. Just start serving. Go find a need and go meet that need. Another objection. Where do I serve if I don't know how I'm gifted? If I don't know how, if I don't know how I'm gifted, I mean, what, where do I start? If I don't know if I have a gift for teaching, how do I start teaching? Here's where you start. Meet the need. We serve a sovereign God. He controls all things. And the fact that he has taken somebody's need and he has made it clear and abundant to you, this person has a need, likely means you probably have a way you can meet that need. What, regardless of what it is. We, I saw people when we first were planning this church, they were planning and I saw people would come in and they would say, man, you guys really need this kind of ministry. You guys need this over here. Or you need this over here. And the simple answer to that was, well, that's great. We're glad you're here, because now you can start it. You see the need, you have a desire for it, go do it. That's the second one. Follow your desires. Oh, I know, that. you shouldn't say that in church. No, what I mean by that is this. If you have a desire for one type of ministry, follow that. 1 Timothy 3, if a man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. One of the first evidences, and it's not the only one, but one of the first evidences of a call to ministry is merely having a desire for it. 
if you have a desire to teach, if you have a desire to care for babies, if you just have a desire to be in mercy ministry and comfort people who are suffering, follow the desire. Another objection. I know my gift, but I have no place to use it. I don't see any opportunities. Well, first of all, um, it doesn't matter if you have an opportunity to use that one specific gift. Just start serving somewhere. But if you know you have a gift, or if you're, you think you have a gift, talk to your elders or your deacons. Now, why do I put both of them up there? Because both of them have specific areas where they would be relevant. Elders, if you think you have a gift for teaching or preaching or leadership, you would want to talk to your elders to determine if that gift is actually there and they can start talking you through that. But if you have gifts for mercy and for caring for others and doing administration, you would probably want to go talk to the deacons and say, hey, where, where are some opportunities? Another objection. I know my gift... But all these serving opportunities require a different gift. My gift doesn't fit with any of the needs right now. This is an excuse. There's no biblical mandate that says you can only serve when it's exercising your particular gift. There's nothing in Scripture that says, well, if you have the gift of teaching, you can't take out the trash. If you have the gift for music... You can't clean bathrooms. No, you can serve regardless of if it's fitting your gift. So why do we serve? We serve because we're slaves of God and we want to love him and serve him. And we do that by serving one another. I would encourage you to find a way, if you're not already, to start serving. Now, I want to say this because this is important. Like every week, I've been telling you, take where you are now and excel still more. I don't know your heart. I don't know how much you are or you are not serving. So examine your own heart and ask yourself the question, am I currently serving? Am I currently serving my brothers and sisters in Christ? And if your answer to that is no, then fix it. If your answer to that is yes, but I could still do a little bit more, then do a little bit more. If your answer to that is yes, but it's as much as I can do right now, then you're just fine. Does that make sense? I don't want this to be a legalistic you know, burden on anybody. Okay. Any questions? Any comments? Anybody mad at me? No questions, comments, or concerns. All right. Well, then let's close in prayer. Father, we, we thank you for this time that we've had. Uh, we thank you for your word that is so clear, so um, relevant even today. We thank you for the gifts that you have given. We thank you for Christ and what he has done for us and for adopting us not only as slaves but as sons. And now we seek to render the service of a slave back to him and to serve him and to love him. And we ask that you would help us to do that as we go about seeking to serve one another and loving one another, not so we can earn something, but just so that we can be pleasing to you and we can demonstrate our gratitude to you. We do ask that you would be with us during our time of worship this morning, that it would be glorifying to you and that you would be pleased. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.